This episode of the Religious Studies Project is brought to you by the postgraduate programs in religious studies at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, they offer taught masters, masters for research, and lots of PhDs. So if you want to check out the link on the podcast page, um, David and I can vouch for the system at Edinburgh, and we think it's well worth checking out. Have a look. Welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. My name's Chris Carter. I'm joined by David Robertson. And this week, um, we've got an interview that David recorded with Arco Longhumor and Bjorn Taffjord on what do we mean by indigenous religions? Question mark. <laughs> I think the easiest way to explain what that means is just to pass right over to the interview. We talk about the world religions paradigm a lot here on the Religious Studies Project. And one of the things we've pointed out on several occasions is, you know, you've got the big five, sometimes the big six, and it depends. Um, it depends on who's editing the particular book, what those are. Um, but you'll often get these additional categories stuck on, you know, new religions. Um, and increasingly, uh, indigenous religions. Um, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, it's not always very clear what it is we're talking about when we talk about indigenous religions. Um, to discuss that today, we're joined by Bjorn Ole Tafjord of Tromso University. Welcome back. Thanks, David. And we're also uh, joined by Arkatong Lonkumer of the University of Edinburgh, um, first time on the project itself, although a, a long-term uh, friend of the project. So, welcome to you. Thank you. Let's start. Um, uh, Bjorn, you've talked about the idea of indigenous religions um, as a kind of language game. Maybe you could explain to us a little bit um, what you mean uh, when you say that. I think I think it's interesting to look at how people use the phrase indigenous religions in different ways, um, how academicians use it in, in different ways to do different jobs in their different academic projects. Uh, and I think it's also interesting to see how non-academicians use the phrase in different ways in order to do jobs in their different uh, political, social, and cultural, whatever, projects. Um, and by paying attention to, to that, I think it becomes clear quite quickly that it's a phrase that uh, is used in ways that, that varies a lot, and that this variation both creates troubles sometimes, both for academicians and for others in terms of understanding each other, uh, but also that it, that it's, it's, uh, that these are creative processes that, that also, uh, opens new possibilities, both within, uh, research and, uh, explorations of, of different cases, but also in, in, in other projects as, uh, non-academicians tap into the discourses of uh, of academicians. And in some ways, this whole conversation really goes back to the earliest days of religious studies, doesn't it? And this kind of um, 
the idea of classifying religions full stop, you know, with uh, Tila and Muller and people like that, because you can't have indigenous religion without this idea of religion itself, right? I think one of the one of the ways that religious studies scholars think about indigenous religions often it's sort of the first the first way we 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 think of it is as a class of religions it's sort of the all the rest all all the other religions than those that fit in the world religions paradigm and all the rest when we take out also the the new religions or the popular religions or whatever we're to call that very uh, uh, varied group so yes i think that's that has been one typical way of thinking about it, but it has all, always, it seems, been one of these categories that sits uncomfortably in, in the scheme of the discipline. Can I just add, um, I think it's interesting um, that what is interesting is that I think we're looking at indigenous peoples and how they actually practice religions. So I think um, if we are to approach indigenous religions as a category and try and find out across, you know, say in Africa or, or in Asia or in Latin America, then I think um, we might have a problem um, because there is no set paradigm of what indigenous religion is. And I think it, it varies according to context. So I think um, what at least I'm interested in is how indigenous peoples kind of understand or practice this thing called religion. Um, so I think in that sense, the category indigenous religions is not a primary factor. You see, I mean, it's something that comes out of us looking at indigenous peoples. Um, so in that sense, I think it's slightly different from, say, uh, the traditional scholar trying to find out what kind of religion is. And that's an interesting point. Um, sometimes uh, these kind of categories do come out of, um, you know, a very good thing and then, you know, our, our attempt as scholars to more accurately represent what's going on. But at the same time, um, we need to kind of play the game of the field a little bit in order for our work to fit in and, and be understood anywhere. Would you yeah, agree with yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that presents us with several problems, I think. You know, if we are, uh, I think if we have an assumption of what indigenous religion is in the academic uh, kind of environment, and I think it's interesting also how that kind of understanding can play itself in the field. So, for example, um, much of my work is in kind of northeast of India, and I'm interested in how the kind of Hindutva or this kind of Hindu kind of nationalists co-opt this idea of indigenous religions to actually include this uh, kind of fringe, kind of marginalized, non-Christian or non-Muslim groups into the fold of indigenous religions by also arguing that Hinduism is a kind of indigenous religion. So here I think we have a problem of how the term, the academic term of indigenous religions is used quite effectively by the Hindu nationalists to propagate their idea of assimilation and inclusion. Yeah, and um, 
Hinduism is is a really interesting case because um, when you have more sort of formal academic attempts at presenting some sort of definition of what indigenous religion is, I mean, Jim Cox's uh, definition is probably the most uh, commonly encountered nowadays. Um, You immediately run into problems when you start trying to apply it because Hinduism is by any of those categories really... um, you know, an indigenous religion. I, I think often it's, it can be um, uh, worthwhile to, to pay attention to the two different words in the phrase. That in, in some projects, uh, in, the, in the typical uh, projects of religious studies where you try to classify religions, uh, then the emphasis will almost always be on the latter word, on religion, and then the adjective indigenous becomes some sort of classifier to, to say that this is a different religion from the other classes of religions. But in many uses, I think, think the, in many uses that are not part of, of religious studies, but also in some of the uses that are part of in, of religious studies, the emphasis can also be on the adjective. And then, then it's not about classifying religions, at least not primarily. Then, then it becomes one about classifying peoples often, mm. or, or other objects or things that are, are seen as belonging to particular kinds of peoples. It, it becomes shorthand for indigenous peoples. Mm. So it becomes the religions of indigenous peoples, uh, which can be used, uh, both, both to, to sort of create groups and demand rights and, and have all these, uh, these kinds of, uh, applications. But it can also be used to discriminate, of course. I mean, to, to talk about we and the other and to, to exclude. Um, yeah. I think there is, the, there's an implicit kind of distinction that goes on with that game, though, that sort of language game. Um, I'll give you an example that I came across recently. Um, in the uh, undergrad course here in Edinburgh, uh, the um, one of they're given the task of visiting the museum and describing religious objects, and we got to talking about um, the way that religious um, sort of indigenous religious things were presented, and um, th- the example was given of a of a boat with a painting of a of a, a sea deity on it, and this was interpreted as a religious act, and I said are we maybe over reading into that, that it's obviously religion because these are primitive people? I said, would we, if a truck drove past you on the A9 in Scotland and it had this, the St. Andrew's cross on the front of it, would we interpret that as a religious act by the truck driver to ensure a safe journey? It might be in some way, but it's also many other things. It's, you know, it's just a particular language that people do. And there are um, national um, uses to that symbol as well. But because it's in, uh, you know, an exoticized um, indigenous culture, we kind of read religion in there in a different way. We assume this kind of primitiveness. Would that be fair to say? Um, yeah, I think part of the whole discourse of indigenous religions, I, I think there are a couple of challenges here. I think... Because people who study indigenous peoples and their cultures and religions, I think, are trying to say to the kind of academic world, 
you have to take us seriously. And I think because of that, sometimes we classify, I guess, ourselves as people who do indigenous religions in order to compete with the other kinds of religions out there. And I think, but um, in terms of actual engagement, in terms of research with the people, I mean, we're not really trying to and isolate categories out by saying that, you know, this is a kind of religious act or this is a political act or this is an economic act. I think a lot of the people that we are working with tend to think about these categories in kind of overlapping terms. So I think um, part of the challenge is, and I think what we as scholars have to do is I think we have to speak a certain kind of like language in order to communicate our ideas. And uh, like it could be in the classroom, you know, it could be in a conference, you know, etc. But I think at the same time, we are also trying to destabilize these categories. Mm. And I think that's where the challenge is because um, to a certain extent, we are in a Western academic environment. And of course, we are also in religious studies. So um, we have to try and try and articulate that. But, but at the same time, also, I think we have to be wary of the kind of limitations of these categories. So the kind of national, the political, the kind of religious, and all of them intertwine. I also think that that those of us who study what we commonly call indigenous religions in, 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 the, in religious studies, I think one way that we might have something to contribute with to the larger uh, field is that most of us do fieldwork. Uh, many who do other religions often go straight for the religion. If you do Islam, you go straight for the Islam. If you do Christianity, you go straight to study um, Christianity. Uh, whereas when we do fieldwork, we are forced to sit around a lot and, and, and be in places. And one of the things we discover is that it's not all about religion all the time. Actually, religion happens. A religion is an act that is done um, just in, in, in different degrees and different ways, but in, and in different uh, circumstances. But, but, it, but I think it makes us also aware of that religion is not around all the time. Um, uh, and that, that's a, some, yeah, one way that I think we can sort of be a group of scholars who remind the rest of the field about uh, not exaggerating about the importance of religion. Uh, we, we, send, we tend to send our students out in the world to find religion, and of course they come back with religion. So the whole field exaggerates about the importance yeah. of, of religion. In, in, in and I think that also ties in with the point about how primitiveness is kind of often associated with how the people are so close to like nature and to gods right, and spirits yeah. and all of that, right? And I think to a large extent, that's not really the case because a lot of the indigenous peoples that we are kind of like working with, you know, have kind of like mobiles uh, where genes, you know, and uh, are kind of engaged in social media. And so, I mean, all of these practices are 
happening. And I think that sometimes destabilizes our kind of notion of what indigenous peoples are. That um, So this one thing that I'm kind of like working on is trying to kind of understand festivals. And, um, and there is a festival that I've been researching a lot and it's called the Hornbill Festival. Festival, which happens annually in kind of like Nagaland, uh, which is the Indian state, and um, what you often get is the tourists that come from the West, say primarily from say kind of Europe and kind of North America, have a certain notion of what this festival is about. So it's about this indigenous subject. You know, who is um, still dressed in their traditional uh, clothes, are kind of like naked or in a carrier on spears. And they have this visual image because this image has been passed on from the colonial times. And they actually, when they come to the festival, they find out that, oh, actually all of them are dressed like us and they carry kind of mobile phones, you know, etc. So, that kind of that kind of image, I think, you know, is quite uh, prevalent, and I wonder if, to a certain extent, that also happens with our students that they have a certain exotic image of what indigenous religions are, and um, and if you don't give them that image, then probably they say, oh well, it's not interesting, is it? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's the the challenge. I think. We as scholars, and especially in indigenous religions, are trying to uh, tackle. I think there's also this widespread assumptions that indigenous peoples have indigenous religions, um, and I think in what I study in, in Talamanca in Costa Rica, one of the first things I was told and has been told repeatedly is that before the arrival of the missionaries, before the Christians and the Baha'is came in the 1960s. We didn't have a religion, uh, and still, the word re- religion is usually reserved to point at those traditions that came in the 1960s, various versions of Christianity and the Baha'i faith. Uh, and it's only recently that some of the younger generation uh, there has started to talk about what they used to call indigenous traditions. Now they started to talk about it as an indigenous religion. And those who do it most are those who have gone to university, mm-hmm. who have probably learned from religious studies scholars or anthropologists or others that religion is something that exists everywhere in all societies at all times, and that indigenous peoples have a certain kind of religion. And then they return, return home or they turn their gaze towards their own community and start to translate indigenous traditions into indigenous religions which i think is quite interesting yeah. it's it's very interesting i mean it's a, it's a very good example why um conversations about how these categories operate is not just academic navel gazing these categories feed back into the world and have uh, very real legal um ramifications for people they exist as legal entities um uh, people begin to construct their own religious and ethnic identities around these categories that we've you know given them basically um 
Yeah, I wondered if you wanted to reflect on that because indigenous religion is not only uh, an academic religious category or a practitioner category, but some, but a legal, um, ethnic kind of uh, category as well. Yeah, and I think that is happening increasingly. I think that um, we have the case of the local indigenous religions, you know, as it were. You know, it could be in Africa, it could be in Asia, it could be you know, Latin America, but we are increasingly seeing the globalization of indigenous religions as well, especially if we are fighting for kind of like national identity or sovereignty or, you know, um, trying to safeguard your ethnic identity within kind of nation states. Mm. So the platform that really affords that kind of space is, of course, the kind of, this kind of United Nations and the, rights on indigenous peoples, you know, which is um, kind of advanced a lot by the UN. So here you enter into, I guess, another arena of, of how these terms are actually quite positive and quite kind of useful and quite empowering as well. So, and I think couched in that is the very important idea of human rights, that, that uh, having an kind of indigenous identity is intrinsically related to human rights issues. Um, so, and of course, also protecting your own religion, your own culture, your own traditions is also tied in with kind of human rights. So in a kind of broader global sense, the term indigenous or the term indigenous religions, I think has a lot of purchase. And, and, and in order to, 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 to gain something from it, you have to translate your traditions, your practices, your narratives into recognizable units. In order to be recognized as an indigenous people or as an indigenous religion, you have to, to make it come across in a way that uh, makes those who, the judges in the, in the courtroom or whoever it is, the politicians who make the decisions, they have to recognize this as an indigenous religion or as indigenous people. Uh, and that sort of forces actors also to play into these expectations that are floating around. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And I think to translate those kind of experiences, I think you tap into, again, the academic the intellectual kind of discourses out there on what exactly is culture, what exactly is heritage, mm -hmm. what kind of religion or politics and all of that. So I think, yeah, I mean, the, the, the cycle of the, the kind of exchange of these ideas and categories, I think are, are both, you know, kind of like local and global and they feed each other, I think. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, 
either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website. It'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. A couple of maybe slightly more critical take on that. I mean, one is that it's very interesting that in an increasingly globalized political system that indigenous religion becomes one more... Um, aspect of an increasing sort of identity politics. Um, so it's, in, you know, um, seeking sort of national, religious, ethnic identities. Um, you know, it could also relate it to, you know, LGBT and all these kind of different, um, interest groups rather than national, um, representatives. And, um, but also there's the way that religion becomes one more card to play in power relations. So whilst sometimes, yes, absolutely, it does have to do with human rights, other times it's much more cynical. There is the case of the um, Canadian uh, uh, Indigenous population who had no interest in promoting their practices as being an indigenous religion until an oil company wanted to drill there, at which point by um, claiming indigenous status, they were able to prevent the drilling from taking place because the land was um, now seen as sacred by the UN, um, and protect, rather, protected by the UN. Um, so, you know, these uh, that's a very good uh, example of the sort of post-colonial legacy of this category of indigenous religion goes over to these other people who then use it in the same power plays um, which they've been gifted, if you like. Um, uh, Yes, I also think that the the, the recent history has to be taken into account, sort of the history of religions, not as a field of study, but but as something in society that... um, Back to the Costa Rican context, for example, the, the the power and the position of the Catholic Church just a decade or two ago uh, was so strong they they were able to dominate the discourse and to decide what was legitimate religion or not. Uh, I think the main reason why why Bribris have said we have no religion is to keep it away from from missionaries who would say, if you have an indigenous religion, then that's superstition or a false religion or idolatry. Uh, so, so maybe what has happened also uh, in international politics uh, in recent years is that some sorts of religions have lost uh, their hegemonic position, whereas other kinds of religions have gotten more space. Uh, in, uh, I, I certainly think that in the Costa Rican context there has been a pluralization of the, the religious field. Uh, and as indigenous cultures and indigenous peoples have gotten uh, more attention and they have been looked upon more positively from the outside, uh, so has their religion. So, so I think this, this sort of return of indigenous religion to to the public sphere or the rise of indigenous religions in the public sphere also has to do with the decline of the kind of discourse that before would immediately would classify this as superstition or idolatry or things that had to be fought or primitive religions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even primal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, all of these academic terms, you know, like uh, primitive, primal, superstitious, 
of course, I think people are also trying to reclaim a kind of identity. And I think the, the whole question of identity politics, I think it's interesting. And of course, identity politics kind of exists. And I think a lot of indigenous activists are also aware of that. And they take advantage of that um, because they're also making choices in the, in the immediate present for their own c communities against, um, say, kind of uh, like exploitation or kind of oil drilling, you know, which happens or dam creations, you know, which so they're trying to protect their land and they're also using these categories effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. So it's not that, you know, all indigenous peoples are so close to kind of like nature and, you know, they're all kind of aloof and, you know, they're yeah. all having a great time. But also I think on the other hand, I think the term, you know, as Bjorn was um, kind of articulating is that the term indigenous religions is also quite empowering. It's about reclaiming a kind of identity and they are using the tools available. And there's kind of like nothing wrong with that. No, of course. That's, yeah. you know, it's, mm. uh, it's exactly the same as happens um, it, it, everywhere. And mm. the point of bringing that up is to, uh, you know, a, an attempt to collapse that distinction. And, um, you know, we, we can see it being used cynically on both sides. That's, that's absolutely, that's human nature and the nature of religion. Um, just one further, um, do you want to go before I change the subject slightly? Yeah, it made me think also that, I mean, there's, again, returning to, to Talamanca and the Costa Rican context, I think indigenous religion or religion indígena, as they would say in Spanish, is sometimes used as a, as a foreign relations tool uh, towards uh, an audience of, of outsiders uh, like us, I mean, academicians and politicians and others. Uh, but sometimes it also creates internal uh, tensions. For example, when, when, when indigenous traditions are recast as indigenous religions, uh, when then when, when um, indigenous religions are being taught at school, uh, parents, uh, who are Christians, Pentecostals in particular, mm -hmm. uh, often say that my children should not take those classes. So they're pu pulled out of those classes, uh, that they were fine with as long as these issues were not, uh, enacted or, or articulated mm -hmm. as religion, but as culture. So, so bringing religion into the mix sort of changes a whole lot of, um, situations mm -hmm. yeah, and relations yeah, and the ways. Things are talked about. But also, yeah. just one final point. I think if we are looking at kind of indigenous peoples practicing a kind of religion, then are we also kind of open to what kind of religion kind of indigenous peoples are practicing? So, I mean, it could be, say, kind of Christianity. So, in that sense, is Christianity an indigenous religion? And I think the common perception is that you know, indigenous religions are largely non Christian. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting thing because, I mean, if we have a formal definition of what indigenous religions is, then I think uh, it might problematize some of the ways we tend to think about indigenous religions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that kind of relates actually to the question that I was going to raise um, in a kind of unexpected way. And so I was going to ask about... Uh, 
there's a sort of time element in this. We don't, for instance, tend to see New Age practices in the West as an indigenous religion. Is that just because of the newness or is it the colonial power aspect or is it a hangover to the hegemony of Christianity, for instance? But, you know, here in Scotland, just to take it as an example, because that's where we are, you're, Christianity is only um, 58% or something at present. Um, and that's just people who identify, not necessarily people who are practicing in any kind of meaningful sense so as you know as you say actually once we start looking the the further down we go these distinctions get more and more blurry yeah um absolutely and i think the term indigenous i think you know well i mean i'm not sure about the academic discipline of indigenous religions and how that came about i think uh, people like jim cox has kind of written about you know this transition from primal to indigenous and all of that you know and i think um as far as i can recall and you can correct me on this i think it was from the 70s or the 80s that kind of indigenous religions actually yeah. came or um was seen as a category in its own right um it's curious how the term indigenous is um not really popular in say Europe. Um, I think in Canada it is, and of course in North America it is, and Latin America it is, but in Europe it's quite interesting that it's not. I mean, mm-hmm. we can perhaps easily say that actually Christianity is an indigenous religion of Scotland. Um, um, so yes, I mean, I'm interested in that kind of idea as well, and what makes something indigenous and what doesn't well, one example I've mentioned before is, um, you know, the, there's an example in Jim's book. And in, incidentally, for the history of that kind of uh, emergence of and history of the term, um, Bjorn's previous interview with the RSP, we go into that in a bit more detail. But there's an example where he talks about Zulus in South Africa as being an indigenous tradition. But the, the Zulus migrated into South um, Africa from um, the Sahara in, what, seven, eight hundred years ago? Um, whereas the, you know, the Dutch arrived there about 400 years ago. So the choice of which of those is indigenous, it's entirely temporal. Again, I think this has to do with that are, that there are different language games being yeah. played here. Um, I, I think the emergence of the international indigenous peoples movement and its success since the 1970s and onwards has made the, the word indigenous Take on primarily the meaning or the reference to indigenous peoples. So that's, that's what most people associate with it today. That's the, the, perhaps the dominant use of it in most contexts. Whereas the, the older use of the adjective indigenous would be something like the opposite of exogenous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a relational, uh, concept or rela- relational category that could be applied to all kinds of things. Um, but usually we associate today, I think, because, just because of the success, uh, the relative success of the international indigenous peoples movement, it, it, it has become this uh, tag or emblem for, for indigeneity or for indigenous peoples, shorthand for indigenous peoples, really. Yeah. But it can be used in many other ways, and it is yeah. used in other, many other ways. But then, then the discussions tend to be... Um, 
uh, yeah. I think I think many misunderstandings arise yeah, from these. Yeah. Talk, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Talking around each other then instead of to each yeah. other. But I mean it could be also a case of uh, the dominant group not categorizing or kind of associating themselves with indigenous kind of religions say mm -hmm. and you know it could be that you know the the category indigenous religions is applied to only the kind of marginalized communities yeah. um which kind of incidentally i mean it's not always the case because um i think kind of like speaking with afe and all of that you know the in say kind of like nigeria i mean indigenous religions is the dominant kind of um group in certain areas um so and of course um that again throws up and of course if we also come kind of and look at hinduism as an indigenous religion then what happens to the 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 category but but also the way we conceive of indigenous religions i guess is the term that i'm kind of looking for yeah mm. Thank you both. Um, this has been a really interesting discussion and um, we've covered most of the different ways this term's been um, uh, defined and understood. Uh, but um, as you're hearing this term, as you're engaging with this term, just you know, bear some of these ideas in mind and try and unpick which of the usages is being um, used in whatever source you're, you're looking at at any uh, given time. Um, so thanks again to both of you for uh, taking part in the Religious Studies Project today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, David. Thanks so much for that, David. Wonderful to hear Bjorn back on the RSP and great to hear Arco. Um, he's been on staff here at Edinburgh for a few years now and has been sort of evading getting on the podcast but um, well done for pinning him down david yes and uh, just in time because he's off back to india for a big research project i believe for the next probably most of the next year so uh, it'll be a while before we get him back on but get him back on we will so we've got a couple of bits of news for you folks um one big bit of news um since uh, our, our last recording is that at long last, the Religious Studies Project has gained a charitable status in, in Scotland. So we're technically called the Religious Studies Project Association, brackets SCIO, which stands for Chot Scottish Charitable Incorporated Organization. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we're only a charity in Scotland. It just means we're incorporated in Scottish law, which is slightly different. And there were good practical reasons for doing that. It wasn't just, uh, you know, jingoism. <laughs> exactly. And um, I'll be getting the website gradually updated, getting the constitution of the new SCIO up there and details of our trustees. But we have trustees uh, based in Australia, the US and uh, the UK. So again, trying to keep that international feel. Um, and also um, our donations, our Patreon campaign that you've heard about already today, um, it's been going pretty well. Um, so do check out that. We'll, you know, we, we now force you to listen to that every episode. Mm -hmm. Thanks cool. so much to everybody who's contributed to that already. Um, you are part of the solution. And a, a special big thank you to Anna Constance Schroeder for her donation. We've also been in another podcast. Yeah, kind of um, a bit of incestuous cross-promotion here, but we uh, were interviewed by Christian Peterson on 
the New Books and Religion podcast about our recent edited volume, After World Religions, um, as well as talking a bit about the RSP. Yeah, I was really pleased with the way it turned out. Obviously, when you're on the other side of the mic, you never really know how much you're babbling and how much sense you're making. But uh, it contributes well to... So we've got that initial podcast with Jim Cox on the World Religions Paradigm. We've then got that... um, compilation podcast that kicked the whole thing off which we called after world religions question mark um and then this podcast with uh new books and religion really sort of forms a nice uh, triumvirate with those two podcasts i'm really pleased we might actually go back and put um a link into those podcast pages on our site to the new books and religion i I think it forms i think it forms a triptych rather than a triumvirate yeah (laughs) um but yeah And uh, that was a lot of fun. I'm kind of, I was pleased as well with the way it came out. But then you think we've had a fair bit of practice now, Mm -hmm. 260 or 70 episodes in now. So, you know, you'd hope that we had some level of professionalization. Absolutely. So you can come back next week, folks, to hear a new interviewer, Tom White, uh, speaking with Wesley Wildman. And they've been talking about modeling religion and the integration of the sciences and the humanities in the biocultural study of religion. So I'm really intrigued to hear that interview. Really glad to have Tom um, out in New Zealand doing interviews for us there. Excellent. So excellent. Um, Until next week, however, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget, you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.